You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. So once again, Happy New Year. 2022 is here and uh, 2021 is done. It feels crazy to say because 2020 felt like that was last week. And so much happened uh, throughout 2021. And so it's kind of a weird thing that we're moving into a new year already. Last year was a great year for us, all of us, to re-engage, to relearn how to be in social settings, and uh, to regularly re-engage together as a church, right? To gather and have all the different events and gatherings that we weren't able to have. Um, and so we move now from the Christmas season of 2021, where we've hopefully hammered in as we've gone through the Advent series, this idea that we have a greater hope because of the birth of Jesus, because of Jesus dwelling with us in the incarnation of Christ. God himself dwelling with his creation in order to bring about his plan for redemption, for reconciliation and restoration. This is the beautiful Christmas story, Christmas message that because we have this great hope, we can now rejoice and rest and have absolutely no worries. And while that's absolutely true, while all of those things are absolutely true, that's not an accurate depiction of our lives, is it? No, the calendar flips and our worries persist. Our troubles are just as troublesome today as they were yesterday. Our world is just as lost and broken and chaotic as it was. We still wrestle with sin in our lives and the effects of sin all around us. And the promised reality of the hope of Jesus is still yet to be fully realized. But we recognize that this doesn't diminish the gospel at all. This doesn't diminish the beautiful hope of Christmas that we celebrated. It doesn't diminish the reality of the great hope that we have in Jesus, that we told and retold throughout the Advent season. What it does is it reveals our easily distracted hearts and minds. We sing and talk of this great reality that in theory should completely turn us around, completely transform the way we think and do everything. And yet as soon as we move on to the next thing, the next day, we're overcome by the thoughts, the emotions, the worries, the troubles, the anxieties that the next thing comes with. We so easily lose sight of Jesus. And oftentimes we know that we do. We're aware but we don't realize that we are when we're in that moment. And so this is a great way to kick off our new year as we dive into our text. If you're the kind of person who wants to make a new year's resolution and you're still looking for something to add to the list, you're a little late, but uh, if you're looking to refocus your life, um, anything like that, this is a great start. In fact, this is a great way to kick off every week, every day even of our lives, to be mindful of our wandering forgetful, distracted hearts, and to continually set and reset our eyes on Jesus and the hope that we have in him. And so we'll look at the passage today that speaks to that kind of Christian life, one that is cognizant of our persistent battle with sin and all of its effects, and yet is able to dwell with and rejoice in the enduring grace and love of Jesus, our Savior. And so why don't we turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, 
verses 17 through 19. That'll be on the screen as well. You can follow along as we read. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master, choir master with stringed instruments. This is God's word. This isn't a book that we flip to regularly, I'd imagine. Um, it's not something that you find at Hobby Lobby on a nice plank of wood. Um, Habakkuk. Um, it's not something that we you know, are drawn to, like we go to the Psalms for refreshing, you know, songs of praise. But there's so much good in here in the whole book, as it is with all of God's word. And it's unclear, to kind of give context and background to all of this, it's unclear when exactly Habakkuk wrote this. And he's traditionally categorized as a minor prophet, um, who was perhaps a contemporary to Zephaniah and Jeremiah, but it's a unique book as far as prophetic texts go. Because oftentimes in this section of the Bible, you'll see the prophet who hears from God, who receives a word and then speaks to God's people. And he says, thus says the Lord and such and such. And yet this is a book that captures the conversation that's entirely between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is sort of the main character here, if you will. And Throughout the book, he does this one thing that we're all probably really good at or you've worked really hard to suppress uh, in this regard, and that is complaining. That's all he does. He complains, and it's essentially the diary of a whiny, whiny man. <laughs> but in it, something amazing happens. God speaks. God responds. And when God speaks, we see transformation happen. And we see this playing out over the course of the book as it happens with Habakkuk's complaints, reflections, and it ultimately turns to praise and rejoicing as we see in our text. This transformation produces a man who identifies and understands the dissonance between the current reality that we live in and the promised future. And he's able to look at both. And oftentimes, we as Christians find ourselves in that very place and often ill-equipped to respond as Habakkuk ultimately does. But we often try to do this on our own and find our own ways to fix this thing, this, this dissonance that we see. Barely two days in, and I've already seen the hashtag 2020U floating around. Um, <laughs> It's a cheesy, cheesy rhyme, but it perfectly captures, doesn't it, the way that we tend to deal with the new year. Maybe we had some good things in the past year, but definitely everyone has had some bad things that didn't go their way, and we wanted them to. So new year, new you. Now's the time to pull yourself together and become the best version that you could be. Look within yourself. You can fix it. 2020 you. <laughs> Trademark. 
this is often the way of the world that we live in. But with the uptick of awareness of awareness and attention to like mental health and things like that, I've seen the conversation swing the other way too. Um, don't set these grand, lofty expectations for yourself this New Year's. It's okay to not become the best version of yourself. Your resolutions and goal, it creates this kind of unnecessary anxiety and pressure on yourself. So take it easy instead. Take it day by day and just be true to yourself. Allow yourself to fail, but keep going. It's a more forgiving approach, more gracious approach to ourselves but it causes us to find contentment in ourselves and in the things that will never give us the full satisfaction that Jesus does. And so to be a Christian is fun because it's navigating this narrow in-between path between these two things and all the other worldly sort of approaches. And this is Habakkuk's transformed reality after his encounter with God. And this ought to be our reality to navigate this life with a godly contentment that makes us rejoice in the Lord despite our circumstances. And so through our text, we observe three ways that God transforms our lives towards faithfulness. To navigate this already but not yet life with hope, we tread with hope in faith by observing the already, by rejoicing now, and by boldly stepping into the not yet. First, observing the already. Habakkuk is forced into this as he complains. In this book, um, throughout the book and prior to our text, the first two chapters record this back and forth between him and God where he complains and God responds and then he complains again. God responds again. God clues him into the work that's going on behind the scenes that, that Habakkuk is completely unaware of. God says in 1.5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says, you have no idea what I'm doing right now. If you would pause your complaining, if you would lift your head and just look around, you would be amazed at what's going on. You wouldn't even be able to comprehend or believe what is happening. I'm sure all the parents in the room can relate to this in some way. Um, my parents teased me all the time growing up because as a kid, anytime I was disappointed or upset and I didn't get my way, the thing that I wanted or the way that I wanted it, I would immediately put on this very pronounced sort of pout. Um, it's like the invention of the duck face. Um, and, and I was... And according to my wife, I still am very bad at hiding my emotions when I get upset. Um, and more often than not, in those moments, I can remember that my parents had something else they had planned, either something that was better than what I had wanted or something that made more sense than what my childish mind thought was right. And it's this kind of uninformed, unaware complaining that God meets with his kindness and says, you have no idea what's going on, and things may seem impossible to you, but I got this. I'm taking care of it. So Habakkuk says, oh, I see what you're doing, God. I get it. But did you know about the other stuff over there? All the bad stuff that's going on? Did you know about all that? 
And again, God responds the second time and he says, you know what? Write this down. It might not happen at the pace you want it to, but I will make sure that all injustice is met with justice and all the righteous will be sustained. I am taking care of everything. I got this. God's response assures Habakkuk and in turn, all of God's people and including us today, that he sees our our hurts. He sees all of the suffering, the pain, the injustices. He sees those living and acting in evil ways and assures them, assures his people that justice will meet them. And so what this does is this forces Habakkuk's hand. This encounter with God and the reinforcement of God's promises, his assurance for righteousness and justice transforms Habakkuk in the third chapter of this book from a complainer to someone that is reflecting and praying and praising. Observing the already, meaning looking at the things that have taken place, recounting, remembering all of God's works, all the things that has been accomplished throughout the history of the world, This helps us to remember the whole story and place God's fingerprints as he has progressed his people to himself. You know, this is such a practical, great practical way that we move from discontentment and complaining to prayer. It's hard to pray, especially when things aren't going right. It's hard to set aside our lives to find time of solitude with God and his word. It's even harder to pray when there's a buildup of anxiety, of bitterness, or even frustration and anger towards God or towards the circumstances. It's hard to find the motivation and the words to pray, to be rejoicing in the Lord as our text does. But we can even pause there to be reminded of the work that God does and has done, that is for us, that is already accomplished. Jesus tells us that he did not leave us to be on our own. He gives us his spirit. Romans 8 reminds us that the spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes on our behalf, even when we don't know what to pray for, what to be praying about. And just as it was for Habakkuk, we observe the already to be reminded of the certainty of God's promises. It is a sure thing. We can see that he has done everything that he has said that he will do and more than we knew. We can pay closer attention to how God is working in in our lives and all around us and see the ways that we've been unaware of his work. We can carry that expectation, the accomplishment of his works, to carry an expectation of certainty, to know that God will do what he says he will. And not only that, observing the already also means that we come out with a redefined expectation of our reality. We come out with a redefined expectation of our reality. Habakkuk goes from recounting the many triumphs of God and the fulfillment of his promises. And then he goes to verse 17, our passage. 
where he's listing out the many ways that the world is actually crumbling and falling apart around him. It's a stark contrast to go from praising God for all of his works to my life is falling apart. But the key word there in verse 17 is the first one, though. It's a critical key to show the change, the transformation that has taken place in the writer's heart towards God. Prior to this, there was no though. It was simply the fig tree is not blossoming. There's no fruit on the vines. There's no food, no livestock, no money. We're all going to die. And God, you need to do something about this now. But having been reminded of the wonderful works of God and of God's faithfulness, not just to him, but to generations and generations, Habakkuk can now say, though these things happen, the world may crumble all around me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. This is the redefined expectation of Habakkuk's reality that's now shaping his response to use language that we as a congregation are familiar with, it is a reorienting of our hearts and in turn, our hopes that takes place when we look upon the works of God. You see, the complaining heart looks at the circumstances around him and is only able to see the current pain and is only able to process the disappointment and the discontent. But when we are ruled by a worldly reality in this way, our hope is never truly in Jesus. And it's misguided. It's in our circumstances improving, whether by hopefully divine intervention or by our own willpower to fix things. But when we're reminded of the story of God, we take a pause and we look up from our own circumstances we look up from our own story of ourselves being the main character and we have a, a renewed sense of our reality. And though I experience trials, though I feel pain in my body, though I am overcome with sorrow in my heart, though my heart breaks for the brokenness that I see, yet I will rejoice in the Lord because I know for certain that he has promised to put an end to that pain. This point is worth belaboring and sitting in and for all of us to sit in as we begin this new year. The foundation on which our faith is built and therefore where our joy is found and therefore what our hope grows out of and where we find strength to persevere. It is in remembering the story of God and observing the already of God's works it's a necessity as oxygen is for breathing, as food is for nourishment. The word of God and all of his works are for our faith and for our joy a necessity. The second way that we see God transforming our lives towards faithfulness that we can observe from the text is rejoicing now. And this is Habakkuk in verse 18, as we've touched upon already. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And we saw that this declaration of joy comes after a realization of his current circumstances. Things aren't good. 
things are not good. And although things are not good, I will rejoice in the Lord. What this does is it gives us a biblical paradigm for joy. Though, insert your trial here, though things are falling apart, though my bank account is going down, though my life is falling apart, though my grades are failing, though this or that, though any kind of trial that you are going through, suffering through, enduring, though I am facing this insurmountable trial, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You see, biblical joy is profoundly different from what the world understands to be joy and oftentimes what we understand to be joy. Oftentimes we equate the word to being happy, but even that's being generous. We generally just mean that we got what we wanted the way that we wanted it or what makes us feel good. Worldly joy more often than not only comes after a positive circumstance, a good thing happening in my life and therefore I am joyful. And my body's responding positively, my brain is firing in all the right places, I'm happy, I feel good, and therefore I'm filled with joy. It's not bad to be happy. It's not a sin to be happy, right? To feel happy in the sense, but you see, it's different, profoundly different from biblical joy. There's just a few things that we can observe in our text that can better inform our understanding of joy and what it means to rejoice in the Lord. First, biblical joy endures through suffering. In fact, it doesn't just endure through suffering, but it ultimately triumphs over suffering, triumphs over those trials. Look at Habakkuk. Earlier I mentioned my childhood, right, and compared it to Habakkuk's complaints and how childish it was, but he's actually got a real case for complaining. If you see the history of God's people, uh, God's people are suffering. God's people are being killed and there's violence and there's a lot of destruction. Um, there's a lot of fighting and people that despise God are in power, tormenting God's people. God is even using these wicked people, these bad people to punish the people of God for their disobedience. There's a lot of crazy things happening. And despite all of the cruel, violent, hopeless realities of his circumstances, at the end, he's able to rejoice in the, in the God of his salvation, a salvation that he does not yet see. And biblical joy is one that sprouts from all circumstances of life, good and bad. Biblical joy certainly includes the good circumstances in life where we can see clearly that God is giving us abundantly a blessing and we can give him credit and glory for giving us a good thing. But ultimately, biblical joy becomes a lasting joy that comes from outside of us, from God, and it becomes the current that all of our circumstances run through. This kind of joy is forged through suffering. It's forged through our pains. And it's more deeply revealed as we grow in learning to trust in God. Oswald Chambers, in his famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, 
wrote this about the joy of the Lord. Where do the saints get their joy from? Where do people get their joy from? These holy saints. If we did not know some saints, we would say, oh, he or she has nothing to bear. But lift the veil. The fact that the peace and the light and the joy of God are there is proof that the burden is there too. The burden God places squeezes the grapes and out comes the wine. Most of us see the wine only. But no power on earth or in hell can conquer the spirit of God in a human spirit. It is an inner unconquerableness. Biblical joy is much more than happiness. It is an inner unconquerableness because we have looked upon God's works in our lives and his promises. We've observed what's taken place already and it's not determined by an emotional response. It doesn't depend on our circumstances, but rather a constant state of being despite our circumstances, sustained by the power of God, given by the power of God. And secondly, biblical joy, rejoicing in the Lord is this sort of all-inclusive response, all-out response. Rejoicing in the Lord isn't caused by anything emotional, but it ought to produce an emotional response. Not only an emotional response, but a physical, spiritual, and every ounce of our being is demanded to respond, to give a response to the joy that is given to us from God and rejoicing in the Lord. Now, if you've been around PCA churches, I haven't been around that long, but as long as I've been here a couple years, um, we have this ugly label on those of us in the PCA church worshiping called the frozen chosen, right? Um, (laughs) So perhaps this sounds scandalous or even blasphemous to say, but when we rejoice in the Lord, biblical joy demands a response in every level of our being. This doesn't mean that we all have to start clapping next week every song, um, but it does point to a sort of big deficiency that we experience in our enjoyment of the Lord. I mean, take a look at our text. At the beginning of this chapter, if you go to the top of chapter 3, it's a, it's a title, like a song title, and some musical direction throughout the ch- chapter, you see Selah. It's in the exact format that many of us find in our Psalms. The stanza breaks, and at the very bottom of our text, you'll find further directions, musical directions, to the choir master with stringed instruments. What does that communicate? That that's in our text. All of scripture is profitable. All of scripture shapes us and transforms us. And we see through that, we see through those notes that Habakkuk's response to God's faithfulness and future promises of justice, of restoration, his response is to break out into song. It's to gather God's people, a choir, remember God's story together, to sing his praises together with instruments, with stringed instruments, And likely, I'm imagining dancing and clapping and all that jazz. (laughs) It's not only 
spiritual, spiritual sort of transformation that we see in Habakkuk from start to finish. It's not just the emotional responses of joy and fear and wonder and sorrow that he expresses and shares throughout the book. And it's not even just the physical response of singing out loud. It's rejoicing in the Lord comes from deep within. And it naturally demands an all-out, whole-person response. So how do we do this? As a worship leader, I'm very cognizant of how we lead here uh, because of other settings that I've been in. Um, And a lot of times the music sort of demands a response, physical or emotional. I used to attend a retreat with a group of small churches in Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area on the East Coast. And there would be this awesome worship band that comes. And some years there was this one keyboardist pianist that would come and she was so so musically gifted that and people joked that she knew the crying chords and what that meant was she played so beautifully and I guess fittingly to the mood of the room that people would break down crying during prayer while she would be playing in the background and that kind of harkens back to a a situation where the music demanded a response. And I've seen other famous worship leaders of popular worship bands that do or say things that demand a response. How's everybody doing today? (laughs) I can't hear you. You know, that kind of thing. That's a classic. Or, you know, the song's beginning. It's like, everybody clap your hands. You know, that kind of thing. Um, In those kind of settings, I don't know. It makes me question. And it's oftentimes the leader that demands a response. These things aren't bad in and of themselves, but it shows us that people can be easily encouraged or even manipulated to respond in ways that are just surface level deep. We can go on about all the different settings that this happens, sporting events, bad drivers, disobedient (laughs) children, Pregnancy reveals, um, military homecoming videos, those are, those are tearjerkers, or military homecoming videos reuniting with a dog. Oh, and the list can go on and on about the things that we give such visceral, physical, emotional, spiritual responses to. But how much more should our response to be to the best story that you've ever heard the best news that you could ever receive. You you were once dead, but now you've been made alive. You were once enemies of the great God, and now you have been made friends. We ought to respond with everything that we have and everything that we are. This isn't to say we have to respond. We must respond every single time in such and such way. Every time you encounter the gospel, you got to break down crying. No, but it does give us opportunity to consider ourselves and the ways that we can dive deeper into the story of God and see and witness all the fingerprints on the fabric of our lives and really see the intricate details that God is working in and through. We work at seeing our lives through a gospel lens. 
that as God is transforming our hearts and our lives through encounters with the gospel, through encounters with the gospel truth, we grow in responding with our whole selves as the gospel reaches deeper into our hearts and our lives. And so in this way, we respond gradually. We don't know how long it took Habakkuk to respond and write this way. We don't know how long these three chapters took. It could have been the course of a couple years. It could have been the course of a couple months. We don't know how long this transformation took, but it happened over a gradual time. And in the same way, we look to grow in responding with our whole lives as we remember the story of God. So when we look at it this way, rejoicing in the Lord is the freeing thing. It liberates us from being tied to our circumstances. It frees us from living life with constant fear and worry and anxiety. It frees us from having our joy be dictated by our circumstances or by the world. It frees us to be joyful even despite our circumstances. It frees us to live with this inner unconquerableness because we can carry with us an absolute certainty in the spirit of God and all of God's promises. We are more than conquerors through him who saved us and loved us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. No more injustice, no more brokenness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, nor mourning, nor death, because the former things have passed away. He is making all things new, and he is at work even now. An encounter with the gospel of Christ will transform your life towards rejoicing in the Lord, the God of our salvation. And lastly, through our text, we observe God transforming our lives towards faithfulness by equipping us to boldly step into the not yet. It's fitting to study this text as we start the new year, I think. It's one of deep reflection throughout the book on the past. And it's one that speaks of the future. And so we do this pretty often as mankind during this time. As the calendar flips, we reflect on the past year. We might map out our future budgets or yearly goals or the one-year Bible plan that we never get through past Leviticus. Uh, (laughs) But we haven't touched yet on how the future is such a huge source of anxiety for many people because we look forward and we see the things we don't have yet. We, see, we look forward and, and don't see a way forward sometimes. And here, after all of the complaining and worrying that goes on throughout the book, we end with a very strange metaphor. It may not look strange at quick glance, but it's a little strange. Verse 19 says, God is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's look at that first part. God is my strength. Pause there and let's just take in the weight of that statement. That's a bold step. That's a bold claim. That's pure confidence. It's a saying that we could hear all the time, but 
when you take a step back and see what it means, God, the creator, the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior, God who can part the seas and stop the sun and the moon, who can move in pillars of cloud and fire, who can do all these powerful, amazing, glorious, almighty things. He is my strength. He's my power. There's no match for that. Any conflict, any war, any sort of battle, any fight, I have the bigger, better, faster, stronger guns and ships and you name it. I have the ultimate power when you say, God is my strength. It goes back to this freeing sense of rejoicing in the Lord that we mentioned earlier. It's that inner unconquerableness. We keep using that made-up word, but, you know, you're with me, so it's, it's good. Um, that gives Habakkuk courage here to say that the Lord is my strength. Not only is God transforming our joy, but he empowers us with his own spirit to have the boldness and confidence to say, God is my strength. He equips us in such a way and we consider what we do with that strength that God gives us. The latter half of verse 19 says, he makes my feet like the deer's and he makes me tread on high places. So we take that strength and we go to our high places. Now, if you're afraid of heights or even just a little uncomfortable of heights, this sounds terrible. <laughs> Unless you're the thrill-seeking adventurous, I want to feel my life slip out of my hands kind of thing. Um, it's generally uncomfortable to be at high places. Uh, I don't personally mind heights. I don't get like, I don't have a phobia, but I also don't want to be made to walk on the edge of a cliff or anything like that. But that's the picture we get here of a deer, you know, not like the Bambi type running through the meadows, but like a deer that lives in the mountains that, um, or we see in Arizona, like the mountain goats and the bighorn sheep and these things that climb in uncomfortably high places. It's the picture of this animal that's coordinated enough, that's nimble enough, that's strong enough in his stance to scale the mountains and all the high places. And in the same way, when God is our strength, he gives us his strength, his, all of his power and might. And we're made to walk through seemingly uncomfortable places but we carry with us the boldness and confidence because we know that God is our strength so that we're able to fully able to tread on these high places and reach our destination. Boldly stepping into the not yet is rejoicing in God based on all that he's done, that he, all that he continues to do in our lives and placing our trust in him to equip us for such high places. I've never been bungee jumping and it's, you know, very much on my bucket list to do one day, speaking of heights. Um, but I imagine that if you go bungee jumping, if those of you that have been, I imagine that you have a level of trust in the bungee cord and all of the safety harnesses that'll be holding you. Maybe you, t maybe you figured that out based on Yelp reviews or... Maybe you figure it out based on the, the look of the guy that's holding you up. Um, 
or maybe just the statistics. No deaths here, so we're good. Um, but to jump into a wide open air, I imagine that you would have to fully trust in that cord to be strong and to do what it was made to do. You see, we place our trust in much lesser things with much less evidence of their success. The scripture tells us, God is your strength. He is my strength. And he makes us tread on our high places. We have full confidence based on everything that God has accomplished, everything that he continues to do, that he will do what he says he will. We can be certain because of everything that he's already done and we can rejoice and rest in him even now in our sufferings. From the beginning, God had promised a rescuer to deliver us from evil. God's people continually look to him for salvation throughout time. And we see Jesus as the most vivid picture of that salvation. When we look to the already, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The perfect righteousness was lived out by his sinless life. The penalty for sins was paid for by his blood. His death and resurrection gave, gave us his grace and mercy and new life in him for all those who trust in him. When we struggle to rejoice because we're worn down by our circumstances because that's all we see, we're reminded that Jesus was met with injustice, with betrayal and mockery and suffering and pain and ultimately death. The second person of the triune God in Jesus felt all of the temptations, all of the pains of human life so that he would be able to sympathize with us and to know our pains so that we would see that our joy is not tied to this world and our circumstances, but it's a heavenly joy given to us by him to strengthen us, to equip us, and when we shy away from then boldly living out our faith, from confidently living out and navigating the high and uncomfortable places of life, we're reminded that God came to dwell with us in Jesus and lived uncomfortably as he walked towards death each day. Such a high place that he even asked in prayer to walk a different path, to put him on a different path. And yet, he said, not my will, but yours be done, he cried. Jesus walked the ultimate high place of death that we could never tread on and survive. And he gives us his own strength so that we could be made to live more boldly by his side. And so church, as we wrap up, I invite you to walk into the new year boldly with all of its challenges and 
trials and suffering and pain that is perhaps ahead of us, walk into all of it boldly. Walk into the high places boldly with full confidence in Jesus. He has completed his greatest work already. His glory demands our joyous response even through our trials. And as we do so, we will continually be equipped and made stronger into stepping into the high places with him. Echo Habakkuk and this kind of confidence. Though everything seems lost, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation.